And we're live. Welcome, everybody. This is the Reality Czars podcast, and we're your hosts, Nate and Thomas. Uh, Tony's not here tonight. Um, thank you so much for joining us, gentlemen. I've got an awesome panel of some really interesting, fun, smart people. Um, and we're going to talk about Christian orthodoxy today. Uh, Paul, why don't you start us out? Why don't you introduce yourself? This is your second right. time on a podcast ever. So I'm That's excited right. to yeah. talk to you, brother. Yeah, de definitely. Thank you, Nate. Hey, guys. Uh, good to meet all of you on the panel here. And um, so my name is Paul Varki Hario. I live in, live in the Pacific Northwest with my family. Um, you know, I, I immigrated to the U.S. from India in 2004 for grad school uh, and found work here and stuff. My own journey to orthodoxy is somewhat recent, but also somewhat ancient. So I'll, I'll try to clarify what that means. So uh, I, I grew up in the Middle East, and my dad uh, was part of um, uh, sort, of, sort, of, uh, the, the, sort of a house church movement in the Middle East. So I grew up in sort of an evangelical slash charismatic uh, setting. But you know, as I progressed into my 20s, I um, sort of discovered the Reformed faith and did that for a while. Uh, but then more recently, uh, I kind of, let's say, discovered or maybe rediscovered the faith of my ancestors, which were, uh, who were Syriac Orthodox or uh, also called Indian Orthodox or, or the Syriac Orthodox in India. There are many uh, ways to refer to them. And um, it was a journey of many years, but sort of uh, slowly came into that and maybe more formally came into uh, the Syriac Orthodoxy which is part of the Oriental Orthodox communion. And I'm sure as we, you know, as we introduce the others here, we'll get into all of that. Um, more formally, we got into that two years ago and sort of that's been our life for the last two years. Yeah. So that's kind of my <laughs> short story. Thank you, brother. Uh, Buck, you want to go next? Introduce yourself. Give some plugs. Sure. I'm Buck Johnson from the Counterflow podcast. Uh, I'm in Lockhart, Texas. And I suppose the 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 podcast started out as strictly libertarian and kind of has transformed as I have over the last few years. I became a catechumen in the Russian Orthodox Church in October 2021. I've not been baptized yet. I, I suspect I'll be getting baptized at the same time my pal Matt here uh, will be, which should be Lazarus Saturday coming up before Pascha. And uh that, you know, we we can find out more as we get into this this show. I don't want to give any spoilers out and have people leave. Okay, yeah, I have no idea what any of those things are, so that's exciting. Uh, Adam, why well, don't you a spoiler go? is when you just ruin something that that <laughs> that you should hold on until later. Adam, you're up, brother. Hey, I'm um Adam. I do a podcast called. Deborah gets red pilled with my mother in law, um, Nate, and well, I don't know, Nate. You never been on the show, but Tony's been on the show, or Thomas has been on the show, and Buck's been on the show. So, um, you know, I heard Buck talking about. I was a big fan of uh, Counter uh, Death Tyrants before it became Counterflow, and um, a lot of people I was listening to in that world were talking about orthodoxy over the last few years and um you know i'm kind of on the same lines as buck i saw nothing but evil um living in the suburbs of portland oregon throughout the last three years um you know i was able to escape i live out in a home 15 acre homestead out in the middle of nowhere um northwest oregon 
and I uh, I go to Orthodox Church now in uh, the suburbs of Portland. So like I, I like to say, I drive uh, from like the most beautiful place in the world through the most evil place in the world to go to the most holy place in the world. So um, yeah, hopefully uh, Pascha time, I will be getting baptized as well. I, I go to catechism. I'm missing catechism tonight for this, so better make it good. <laughs> All right, Matt. So I'm uh, I'm Matt Erickson. I am the host of the King Pilled Show on YouTube, <clears throat> and um, I kind of had a bit of a similar trajectory to Buck. We've had a lot of crossover. We uh, I started out doing what well, was mostly a, a political show focused on politics, mostly from a libertarian perspective, anarchist and Murray Rothbard kind of stuff, and throughout the it was kind of the end of 2020 that i started doing it going through the the 2020 election and i went through a pretty big transformation in my own life i have a, a christian background i was raised actually very devout conservative christian um have a you know a great family lots of siblings um whole family is very religious and uh, i was i was seventh-day adventist which is kind of a unique sect um I grew up in the Pacific Northwest as well. I was born in Reno, but I, I grew up in the west of Seattle and uh, went to college in eastern Washington and uh, came from a pretty conservative political background and then and then uh, went full ANCAP. I was basically about as ANCAP as you could be. And going through the process of the, the uh, first of COVID and then the, the 2020 election really just kind of peeled back the curtain on aspects of reality that I hadn't picked up on before. And I was starting to, I was very interested in, in trying to understand uh, like theoretical physics, trying to figure out like, what's the, what's the, the fabric, like the theoretical substrate of the, of the, of the, or the, 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 the substrate of reality, trying to understand it from kind of like a theoretical perspective and trying to make sense of it all. And, and I was getting pulled in a Eastern mysticism kind of a direction. I was starting to get interested in Buddhism and, and, uh, and then I, I encountered this guy named Ven Armani at the time. He's now uh, goes by Cyprian. And he went through a pretty crazy conversion process to, to Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And he said, this, you, might, you might find this interesting. Um, I don't remember if it was him or if it was someone similar at the time said, they described it as, as uh, it's, like, it's like Christianity, but mystical. And I, I was like, well, that's, that's very interesting to me. I was into psychedelics. I, I kind of was the whole nine yards. And so I, my only awareness of orthodoxy to that point was that it was, they were kind of like weird Catholics that like had big beards and, and, uh, I typically saw them all in black and just kind of, they were just sort of like this weird Eastern European thing that I didn't know anything about. And I started studying into it from a, from a philosophical perspective. I'm one of these people that basically read my way into the church. Um, so I was, I was studying, uh, things about like the, the nature of God, Christology, the nature of Christ, and uh, the nature of the Trinity, triadology. And that was what really, I, I like I discovered that the church fathers, who I just assumed were kind of like, you know, they were just like holy guys who wrote stuff about the Bible. I didn't really think much deeper than that. And I realized, no, these are actually like um, some of the most brilliant men who've ever lived. They were profoundly um, philosophically well-read and, and a lot of their works are, um, not, not that, not that it's a, it's a bad thing, of course, to, to be writing, you know, theological works and talking about, um, 
about uh, what you would typically consider Christian um, conversations, but they they branched out much further than that. This was this was like a deep dive into into some of the headiest philosophy that I'd ever gotten into, um, and that's when I realized that Christianity was not at all what I had grown up thinking it was. So, um, in 2021, my family and I uh, were living in Southern California, and we decided we'd had a little boy and decided that we did not want to raise a child in Southern California. So we, uh, we were, I like to say that we were uh, um, political refugees seeking asylum in Texas. And uh, we moved out here. And that's when I got in touch with Buck. And we were kind of looking for an Orthodox church in, in the San Antonio area. And Buck is out <clears throat> in Lockhart, which is about 30 minutes or so south of Austin. And he was like, well, why don't you come out here? Come, come check out my church that I'm going to. And we were like, well, it's like a, like a 75 mile drive to get out there. But we, were, we weren't really super enthused with some of the churches that we'd gone to in, in San Antonio. So we were like, let's, let's give it a shot. And we drove out there and just immediately knew that this was exactly, this is exactly what we were thinking of. This is exactly where we wanted to be. Um, so now we've been, we've been attending ever since then. And we're, my family and I are going to be baptized at the same time as Buck here at, you say Pasca. Pasca is just um, Orthodox speak for Easter. Um, so it'll be at, at Easter time, we'll, we'll get baptized. And uh, yeah, it's, so it's been great. I'm now living in Cibolo, which is on the northeast side of, of San Antonio um, and still adapting to Texas. I was telling him before we went live that we're, uh, we're suffering through a, a great cold snap. It's gotten down all the way to like 28 or 29 degrees and nobody in Texas knows how to deal with that. So <laughs> The whole the whole state has just shut down this week, um, so that's allowed me time to to start getting back on and doing some shows. So thank you, thanks for having me here, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my own journey to Christianity. Well, I started as a Christian, and I was raised very Pentecostal, um, in a very bizarre, awesome church actually. And right now, I'm attending. Well, I went hard atheist in my teen years and my early twenties, and started really exploring psychedelics, like tons of mushrooms as much mushrooms as i could fit in my mouth um and i was in like downtown portland and doing as much mushrooms as i could just hanging out doing karaoke at the bars and things like that and um something something about i i don't know i do kind of i say that mushrooms kind of brought me to jesus in a weird way um it kind of opened me up and made me more empathic and less of a jerk and I started like seeing, cause Portland is surrounded by homeless people. I started seeing homeless people as people. And I started like recognizing like a little spark of the divine in them. I could see like God in them. Um, and I just started like hanging out with some of the hobos. And I started like talking to them and started praying with them. And meanwhile, like I'm supposed to be an atheist and I'm sitting here praying with homeless people. Um, and just like kind of hearing him out and giving him hugs. And uh, I realized too, I was all, I was already a father as well, that life as an atheist sucks. The whole thought that there's nothing beyond this, that this is all we have, that you just died, that we're on a rock, we're monkeys on a rock flying through space. Uh, and there's nothing after that. It's, it's just the most depressing, awful thing. And I was having these like philosophical kind of philosophical conversations with, with my little boy. And I was just like, man, what do I want to leave him with? You know? And my, my mom had kind of started inviting me back to church 
And I was at this time, I was like an ANCAP, an atheist, libertarian ANCAP. And um, I started having a conversation with her pastor and I had been waiting for him to like piss me off. I'd been waiting for him to like offend me. Um, and afterward he didn't. And afterward we sat there and we had like a long conversation and he was an AMCAP too, which was really fascinating. Um, and so it brought me back to church. I was like, wow, okay, this is, this is pretty interesting. And then Jesus grabbed my heart again. So, uh, since then I I'm going to a pretty interesting, weird church right now. It's like a, a messianic church. Um, so there's a lot of dudes with, uh, the kippas and blast and shofars and, and, uh, we worship Jesus and talk and speak in tongues and all kinds of wild things. Um, Aren't and you guys Saturday people, though? Saturday people. Yep. Yeah. I think it's just because we don't have a Sunday church. Because uh, we don't, like, we were renting it from a different, you know, from a different church. I, uh, if we had our own building, I don't know. I don't know if it's hmm. like a, yeah, we might celebrate on Sunday. I, I never had an explanation for why we celebrate on Saturday. But, uh, yeah, man, I'm honestly really curious about Orthodox um, orthodoxy in general. And I don't know who wants to take the, take this question first, but like, what in your guys's opinion is the difference between like orthodoxy and Pentecostalism oh. or, uh, just, uh, Protestantism in general? I mean, I don't think you guys speak in tongues. I'm pretty sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take a shot at it. Um, yeah, you can, you can take some, go the philosophical route and there's some, some major philosophical differences that come down to, um, our beliefs about the nature of Christ and, uh, the nature of the Trinity, um, specifically between Orthodoxy and Pentecostalism, but really more broadly, um, between Orthodoxy and Protestantism, just, just, just in general. Um, but maybe one of the more practical big differences is that no, yeah, Cooper in the chat, he actually, he'd be an interesting person for you to talk to because he grew up Pentecostal as well. And he really confronted a lot of his, 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 uh, presuppositions and his understandings of the world. Uh, he's, his brother is a Pentecostal minister. Um, so he's, he'd be very interesting to talk to on that specific subject. Um, he's a complete nerd. So he'll, he'll give you the, the nerd take on everything. Um, but more practically speaking, I think the biggest thing that sets apart orthodoxy from Protestantism is the tradition. So uh, all all Protestant denominations, the oldest Protestant denomination might be Lutheranism, which is going to be about 500 years. And then virtually all the rest of them descended from approximately from that, just for the ease of conversation, they approximately descended from Lutheranism. Um, so these are young, relatively speaking, these are young traditions. And they're if you start really pressing them for philosophical coherence, you're going to run into some major, major issues um, that uh, they've got some presuppositions about the world that developed between uh, the, the birth of the Orthodox Church, which was, would have been 8033 um, with Christ. Between that point and the rise of Protestantism, there was a lot of different uh, presuppositions, metaphysical presuppositions about the world that, that developed. And when the, the Protestant churches began to splinter off, they baked in some of those things into their understanding and interpretation of, of Scripture. And that's what they—so that's what the root of, of most Protestant denominations, most, is uh, sola scriptura. They believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority. 
But the problem with that is that a text cannot be an authority because a text has to be read and interpreted. A text presumes an authority. Uh, so these traditions are very young, uh, relatively speaking, and they're not when you begin really digging into them from the right perspective that you realize that they're not, um, there's a lot of incoherencies in them. Uh, the Orthodox tradition is is the oldest Christian tradition. And it's not just that old means best necessarily, but because it's the oldest, it, it you can trace the apostolic lineage of the modern day bishops all the way back to the original apostles. So it is the, the church that Christ planted. And those initial apostles took their understanding that they got directly from Christ and used that as they formed churches at his behest. And then they passed on those understandings through that tradition. So that's the really probably the biggest thing that would set um, Orthodox apart from Protestants would be the, the coherency and the depth of the tradition. That's that's super, super fascinating. I, I was going to ask about that because I think a lot of what we see as Christianity today has been has been distorted from like the original teachings of Christ. I see, uh, you know, a, a lot of that, you know, and so I was really fascinated, fascinated by orthodoxy. And I was going to ask because Catholics also claim to have been the original church and was so you guys were unified at that time though correct was that was that uh or i don't know you can tell yeah. me how that works there there is a split in 1054 called the great schism some people smarter than me call it the great schism uh but that that's when it split and so within the orthodox creed that we say in prayers and every sunday we still say i believe in one holy catholic and apostolic church which means to us that we are still the original Catholic Church and the and the the one that everyone knows nowadays. And this is I'm not trying to insult anyone who, who's a Catholic by any means, but it, it split off at some point and became something that it wasn't prior to 1054. Hmm. Do you have any historical context with that? Do you know what the what the split was about? I, I don't. None of you guys are probably historians, but you guys. Well, we <laughs> we yeah, we certainly know what some of it was about, yeah. and, and 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 I should say I I say this on every stream and, and podcast I'm on regarding these things. I am not an expert in orthodoxy. Uh, I'm a catechumen, and you can be in this this world for 30, 40, 50 years, and and there's still a lot to learn. However, uh and and any of you guys can take this but certainly uh the pope issue being the one uh authority over man basically um it was an issue and there's a thing called the filioque that also was an issue and that's that's one or two words that were added in uh and it has to do with spiritual issues on where the holy spirit comes from into the, the nicene creed right yes sir the nicene creed and that was a big deal. Uh, and so I'll, I'll let anyone else take it from there. I would, I would love to hear the details of that uh, as, if, as much as you know, as far as like, what was the difference as far as where the Holy Spirit comes from? Like, uh, We say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Okay. And, uh, meaning God the Father, obviously. And, and I actually can't remember how the Catholics... Changed. I think they say father and son. Yeah, filioque means literally and the son. Okay, so they say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And the Son, and, and that's in our... We, we believe that they're they're all one. Yeah. 
Fascinating. I mean, because what I was taught as a Protestant is that, like, the Holy Spirit was literal. You know, I don't want to butcher it, but like, like after Jesus died, he his like it's literally like his ghost is what I was taught. It's like his spirit that was uh, like left here for us. Well, another I, name all... is the Holy Ghost. That's one of yeah, the other the Holy phrases. Ghost, yeah. But yeah, and and in Roman Catholic, I was I was born and raised Roman Catholic to the point where my grandparents were Opus Dei, which is about as hardcore Roman Catholic as you could possibly get. Uh, and that the Holy Trinity and the esotericism of that, exactly what Adam was saying, like the three are the one that that is almost the core tenant of some of the most sort of, uh, you know, esoteric Catholic belief uh, and exoteric is that those three are the Holy Trinity. And it, it all is sort of, you know, potato, potato. The the issue of the filioque is really um, unless you're someone that really likes digging into um complex philosophy and theology it's it's going to be it's probably going to make your eyes glaze over i know it happens for me when i when i read and study about it it's difficult to to really um parse and understand and it's i mean it's it's been the source of a split for a thousand years so it was it was substantial enough to provoke the split and it's been substantial enough to maintain the split all that time even though on its on its face it seems kind of like a um, like when you first hear about it, it's kind of like really that doesn't seem like that big. Like so, the Holy Spirit comes from here, comes from there. It actually plays a role in how you understand the nature of the Trinity, the nature of the Trinity, and the role of the persons within the Trinity. Um, because the the Trinity doctrine is really at the heart of Christianity, and most um, well, particularly Protestants really just kind of take the take the trinity for um for granted they just are kind of like yeah yeah father son holy spirit and it's you know the three or one and and they just sort of move on from it but if you really sit and ponder and study what that means what it means to have one god manifesting as three persons and the the downstream implications of that it's actually extremely profound and you can't you can't start messing with the structure of it or and literally all of reality breaks down if you if you don't have a coherent doctrine of the trinity so orthodox christianity is rooted in the trinitarian doctrine and it's a very specific doctrine and once you you start with the the order of the trinity and then within that you have the nature and the person of christ and so, uh, so triadology and then Christology built on top of that. <clears throat> those, there's, it's called a, the, your, your order theologiae. So the order in which you do theology. So if you're starting from the ground up, the order in which you build up your theology matters. And this is one of the things that really sets apart Protestants that they, um, they tend to start with soteriology or the study of salvation. So they have their theory about salvation, and then they read their presuppositions about what salvation is back into their understanding of the Trinity and the nature of Christ, which leads you into all sorts of different heresies. Um, the really the, the filioque ended up being the, maybe you'd say like the straw that broke the camel's back in the schism between the, um, the, the Latins and the, the East. But, I think that it was it was not just the filioque, but it was how the filioque ended up being used. So the bishop of Rome, 
uh, unilaterally inserted the filioque way into the creed. And the creed was something that had been established through the, the normal governing structure of the church is the synod of bishops. So all of the bishops together um, will convene, and it's called an ecumenical council, and they will make decisions about, um, they, will, they, will, they will clarify or establish understandings about doctrine. They're not inventing the doctrine, they're um, coming together and agreeing, this is what the doctrine is, this is, this is what has been the universal practice of the church. And, and they will instantiate it to say, this is, this is what we believe, this is what we have believed. And it has always happened that way. It began in, uh, in Acts, you can see the first ecumenical council held in Acts. Uh, the book of Acts in the Bible. So when the filioque was added to the creed um, by the Roman bishop, there was two problems that the East had with that. The first problem was the issue of the filioque itself. The second problem was that the Roman bishop did not have the authority in the eyes of the Eastern Church to unilaterally change the creed. So in doing so, the, it was, it was a, the summation of, of several hundred years of the Roman bishop beginning to, to take on more and more authority that, that the East believed he didn't have. Um, and, but that was, the, that was like the final straw, essentially. And so then at that point, both the, the East and the West mutually excommunicated each other. So the East, there was, so there was, there was five major cities, five major bishops. It was... Uh, um, Rome, Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Constantinople. Constantinople, yes, thank you. And so the four of them all together excommunicated the Roman bishop, and and so doing the entire church beneath him, and then and vice versa. And it actually the way it, it happened was uh, the, the 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 papal legate um, came up and uh, uh, at, at, during the liturgy he actually showed up and presented the, the document of excommunication. He walked up in the middle of the liturgy and threw it on the altar and, and walked away, which is, if you understand the structure of the Orthodox Church, that's, it's, it's like downright blasphemous. It's, it's like the, the most um, a, a egregious violation of decorum you can get. And they actually, one of the, I don't know if it was a deacon or someone ran after him and, try, and, and, and took it and said, no, like, don't do this, let's work this out. And, uh, and they just, they just ignored him and kept going. So he just threw it on the ground and, and went back in. And that's where, that's where, uh, the, the split happened. It's funny to me to think about these, you think about all oh, this great big split, but what it came down to was it was actually individual people that had a specific interaction at a given moment in time. And, uh, and then thus this, the split happened from there. That's fascinating, man. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I was going to say, so, uh, you know, I wanted to answer your original question about orthodoxy uh, versus Protest Protestantism, because I, I sort of, that was my childhood versus now. But before that, I'll, I'll say something, I'll emphasize something a little bit uh, unique in this forum. All of the orthodox uh, gentlemen here are from the what is main, known as the mainstream orthodox church, at, at least in the West. When, when you use the word orthodox, you typically mean the Eastern Orthodox communion, which includes the Greek, the Russians, and I, I call that the Byzantine communion. And that's actually, in, at least in the West, that's the main uh, communion known as Orthodox. But what is interesting is uh, 600 years before the Great Schism, uh, in the fourth century, there was already a lesser schism within the Orthodox. And so I am part of the other side of this lesser schism um, currently, and that, you know, that is known as the Oriental Orthodox communion. 
which is you know, further east of the Easterns, <laughs> if, if you can believe. And, <clears throat> and it consists of what is today known as the Coptic uh, you know, church, the Syriac church, the Indian church, the Ethiopian church, uh, the Eritrean church, and the Armenian church. So these uh, <clears throat> five or six churches, uh, depending on how you count that, um, in, in our part of that. But, uh, but regardless, and, and depending on who you ask, some Orthodox would be, let's say, very um, passionate about the split. Uh, my own perspective is more ecumenical. I, I'm more interested in understanding where we can find unity. Uh, and also at a, let's say, the, the level of the bishops and the theologians, there have been a lot of efforts in the last uh, you know, 50 years or so to reconcile and um, tease out these so-called differences, at least among the Orthodox, as um, maybe linguistic or semantic issues and not necessarily theological issues, but you know, that's also a deeper conversation. All of this to say, uh, from my perspective, when I, <laughs> when I say West, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I also, in my mind, automatically think of the Greeks <laughs> as part of the West, because from a Syriac and Indian perspective. Yeah, so that, that's, uh, so I, I see, and also it's not just sort of geographically, but there is a theological aspect in which I see the Latins and the Greeks in some respects close to each other. But before getting to that, I wanted to address this, you know, Matt nicely addressed the question of the tradition versus scripture and how the Protestants have a recent tradition. You know, when, when, when Protestants say that the Bible is the authority, uh, the interesting historical fact is the Bible itself comes out of, uh, let's say, Orthodox Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. the, the creeds are the ones that, you know, sort, you know, sort of recognize the canons as they were <clears throat> read in the churches. So, uh, but uh, the, the, that was sort of to add to Matt's point. But the other point I wanted to make about the difference and something that was personally meaningful for me was on soteriology. And that was really the what drove my journey from Protestantism to Orthodoxy. And this is how I see it. So, so within Pro Protestantism, but also within the Catholic faith, the question of salvation is presented as a judicial question. It's almost like there's a courtroom scene and, you know, in the final judgment, what is going to, you know, what is going to happen to you? Right? What is your eternal destiny? And, and I'm not saying this is necessarily false, but the emphasis, so this, this judicial emphasis, uh, at least from my perspective, and I don't, I'm not speaking for the Orthodox Church, but sort of where I am on my journey into Orthodoxy, that judicial perspective is emphasized strongly in the West. And when, now when I say West, I mean Protestants and Catholics, right? So while Protestants and the Catholics might give a different answer, possibly, to that question, in Orthodoxy, I see that the question itself is different. It's not that, you know, it's a different answer to the same question, but the question is, how is God bringing us from death to life? Or how is God healing a broken, sinful creation and bringing it from, yeah, essentially death and deadness to life? And so it's more of a medical uh, metaphor as opposed to a judicial metaphor. And so this was part of this understanding of soteriology or salvation was a huge part of my own journey as I walked from Protestantism, Protestantism to Orthodoxy. So I just wanted to add that thought there. That was, that was well put and to just add on to what Paul said. Oftentimes within Orthodoxy, the church is called the, a hospital for the soul. And I had never heard language like that growing up in, in a Protestant uh, denomination. So, you know, it, it's completely, you're, you know, I remember someone told me, you're going to go talk to your priest about that. It's not like he's a doctor. And 
on one hand that the joke was like, well, he is a doc, he has a doctorate, but on, but in reality he is, is a, you know, they're look at, they're looked at as spiritual healers of sorts. And so if, if the church is a hospital for the soul and, and that way he is a doctor, if that makes sense. Fascinating. I have a question for you guys, as far as, uh, orthodoxy and theology goes, um, where are you guys on like gifts? Where are you guys on like things like healing? Uh, do you think, do, can you pray and God will like heal things like that? Or I know there's, there's some sects of Christianity that are just like, no, that was the past. We, well, I mean, God saints, will heal you or not. Saints or, can heal. People, yeah. you know, saint, we, we consider there's something called theosis where you're trying to, to almost be, for lack of a better phrase, like Christ-like, and and the and the further you get in that direction, you there there are people there are human beings that can have these certain powers that are Christ-like, and that's where so many saints over the years, in fact, modern ones that that I know people personally that were healed by Saint Sarah, well, Father Sarah from Rose, who will be considered a saint here at some point, and he was alive just in the eighties. You know, he is when he he passed in the early nineties, so. Yeah, if people reach a state, there he is right there. Yeah. Yes, that's a good book. Um, so five bucks on Amazon right now. So get a bunch so, and hand them out. So certainly prayer is healing of sorts, and that's that's Holy Spirit and and Christ. But the the closer you get to that, to that is our goal. And I'm really far, uh, but <laughs> but human beings have have been known to heal as well. Not just the human beings, but even uh, items of clothing or or um, items that have that they've touched or been around or icons. Those these are all things that have that are associated with healing. Yeah, and uh, holy water, holy water as yep. well. Holy water. Fascinating. Okay. Yeah. The theosis. I... The the subject that that um, that Buck mentioned there. That theosis is essentially like the the um, without going too super technical with it because i'll get out of my depth pretty quick it's essentially um participating in the energies of christ and our human nature becomes divinized through that process and we believe that this is something that the famous quote by saint athanasius the great he said that god became man so that man might become god yes bingo that we are fascinating this is the this is the significance of you'll see that that Orthodox will what where Protestants tend to focus on the death of Christ, and this is something Paul was kind of getting at. Uh, Protestants will focus very much on the death of of Christ, and they treat it as a as a, a judicial transaction. It's like a courtroom, and that imagery is in the Bible. There is that um, that there's an element to it, but that's not the entire story. Um, Orthodoxy tends to focus more on the incarnation. Again, not that these things are are mutually exclusive, but there's an understanding of the incarnation that I think most most of Protestantism has lost, which is that the actual metaphysical implications of having God born as a man and taking on human nature and and then living as a perfect human being and what that does to human nature. Because if you think about... Um, there's the, the, the woman in the Bible who had the, the emissions of blood, and she touched Christ's cloak. Speaking of, of working miracles, she touched Christ's cloak, and just the act of, of touching him healed her. So being physically in the presence of something that is, is profoundly holy will actually f- change your physical self. In the same sense, having God 
take on human nature. In that sense, you can think of God touching humanity by being human. He has human nature. So then what it means to be human is changed. So the process of theosis is the process of participating in the energies of Christ through the sacraments, through life in the church, and faithfully doing this, as, as St. Paul said, work out your, your salvation in fear and trembling. You're working out your salvation. You're, you are being divinized through this process. And the Orthodox believe this is a process that doesn't just end when you die. This is what heaven is. Heaven is the process of being eternally divinized by existing in the presence of God. And it doesn't just end when you get saved. That's also something I, I heard a lot growing up. Like, I'm saved, game over kind of thing. Not necessarily game over, but I, I, when were you saved? I, someone asked me that recently, and I thought, that's a weird question. Yeah, it goes. it's kind of like the I got that's, asked the other day by a... That's by a, Protestant by a Baptist fuck. guy. If I if I if yeah. I considered myself born again, I'm like, no, we don't. We're not. We don't do that. Yeah, we repent, and and maybe you, you, that's some form of being born again because you're changing your habits and 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 also repentance is is not necessarily stopping one behavior, but rather re re orienting your behavior into the opposite direction and so in other words i father turbo who, someone i had on described it to me as i think it was uh, cyprian actually for instance if if someone who abused animals w wanted to repent and let's say michael vick right and the repentance wouldn't be stop abusing animals and go live your life and you're good it would be rather now go on a promotional tour and explain why you were wrong and and maybe work for a dog shelter an animal shelter in that sense so it's not just stopping a behavior but it's reorienting it and almost inverting it into a mm. proper behavior if that makes any sense if you yeah, think about the story of zacchaeus the story of zacchaeus when jesus went to his house zacchaeus was so he was a tax collector so he made his living essentially extorting people and likely violently his responsibility was just essentially the romans would give him a bill and they'd say go extract this bill and if you get more, keep it. And his responsibility was to go extract that. So he was someone who was very, very wealthy and had gotten virtually all of it Ill, through ill-gotten means. We're talking about George and, Soros right now, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. He was. He was. Yeah. He was. Uh, he did have one thing in common with George Soros, I was say, and, yeah. and he, he was. He was a little short guy. He had. To, he had to run ahead of the crowd to see Jesus. He had to climb up in a tree. Climb up the tree. So that's right. We just. Right. We just know about this because it was last week about him last weekend. So yeah. 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 So he he went to. So Jesus went to his house, and people will focus on where Jesus said. Um, I, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but he said essentially. Um that salvation has come to this home today. and But what they miss is what happened just before that. Just before that, Zacchaeus said he was going to stop doing what he'd been doing. He was going to give, I think, 50% of all that he had. He was going to give back everything that he'd stolen and give away 50% of all he had to the poor. And it was once Zacchaeus said that, that Jesus said, today salvation has come to this home. So think, repentance uh, is not just stopping doing what you're doing before. It's going in the opposite direction. Yeah. Jewish law at the time was that you had to pay back 1.25% if you, if you needed mm. to do that. And he's, I think he said he was going to pay it back four or fivefold. Four times. Mm. Yeah. 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 And, and I'm sorry. What, you know, you mentioned uh, that the born again thing, 
you know, I, I grew up charismatic, so I know what they're allusion, what they're alluding to when they when they ask uh, born again. But I just say, yeah, the day of my baptism was when I was born again. So, <laughs> mm, got it. yeah, that's per perfectly orthodox to say that. Right? So, okay. Yeah, yeah. From yeah, from our perspective, uh, from a Protestant perspective, I guess that would be the day you invited Jesus into your heart. Right. And right. so you become a new creature in Christ. That's what the born again means. Um, and I'm curious about, let me see here. Yeah. Oh man. There's so many different things that I was curious about what you guys, and I was also curious, do you guys do confession? Yes. Is that a, okay. Yeah. You're as catechumens, we don't, but once you're baptized, the, I don't know how legalistic this is, but in many Orthodox churches, if you don't do confession, it's preferred that you don't take part in the Eucharist. That's not 100% across the board, but it's the confession is kind of wiping the slate clean, if you will, and then you're you're ready as you are the night before with saying pre-communion prayers and fasting and whatnot. But then you're ready to partake in the in the blood and body of Christ. And, and when you say out. that the the body and blood is that in Orthodox is that's the same concept of transubstantiation that happens in the Catholic Church, or is it is it literally mm -hmm. changing the Eucharist into the body? Or is it different than that? So it's it's. Uh, hold on, I got two streams of thought here. So let me get one of them. So the it's not exactly the way that it is in the Catholic Church. There's one one characteristic of the West from the Orthodox perspective, is from the from the Eastern Orthodox perspective, is that um, there's aspects where, um, as we see it, the Roman Church tries to parse things too much. They try to take things. Um, they try to identify, okay, what's the exact moment at which it becomes the body and blood? Is it when it is it when the priest says this word? Is it with this it's word? The bells. It's you, when the bells ring, say, dude. <laughs> right, right. If you if you say the word just if you pronounce the word wrong, does that affect it? So to to the Orthodox mind, there isn't a point at which it becomes the body and blood of Christ. The entire service is the context for it. So you can't you can't take one action out of the service and identify that as the singular moment because the entire that each of the actions exists in the context with all the rest of them. But yes, we do. Yeah, we do believe it is literally the body and blood of Christ. Um, and I was going to say we should emphasize that um, from a from a Protestant perspective, uh, you probably take communion maybe once a month or or once a quarter or something like that. It's typically not done that often, and when it is. It's emphasized this is symbolic. Anybody is welcome to do it. There's, uh, you know, there's all kinds of different ways that it can be done, that there can be, you could have, uh, um, you know, crackers and grape juice, or there was even a, there's even a church recently that had a, a I, I want to say it was Anglican, but I don't remember. There was a, a church recently that they were, they were um, remembering Trayvon Martin. And so they're, <laughs> Eucharist was Skittles and Arizona iced tea. <laughs> um, I like but, that. Uh, so with the Orthodox Church, the liturgy that, that is held, the liturgy held every Sunday, it um, the Eucharist is part of that. That's it's the central part of the service. It's and being an service, yeah. right, right, and being an Orthodox Christian means participating in that as often as possible. So it's a central part. And if you're not baptized then you, you will not be allowed to receive the Eucharist. And it's not because it's an exclusive thing that you just don't get to. It's because it actually can be 
literally harmful to you to to receive it. This is why you confess, why you say the pre-communion prayers, why you do all of this ahead of time, why you fast. Orthodox Christians don't um, don't eat anything the morning of, for like all of Sunday morning up until the Eucharist. These are all because these things aren't just symbolic. It's not just, there's a spiritual reality, and there's also a literal physical reality to this too. So part of theosis, part of being divinized by participating in the energies of Christ is eating his body and blood. And if you're going to do that, you don't want to do that unworthily because it will actually be, it, it can cause your death. It's not that you're going to, it's not that you're going to take the Eucharist and you're going to fall over dead necessarily. It could happen, but it's that it's, it's spiritually harmful to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same kind of, it might be kind of similar to you think about the story of the old Testament <laughs> where, um, as reached out and touched the Ark of the Covenant. And when they had it on the, on the, on the cart and he was struck dead, it's like he was doing a good thing. He meant well, but he wasn't doing things the way that had been prescribed to do. And it's known as death by holiness, essentially. So that's something you could potentially expose yourself to if you receive the Eucharist without going through the, for lack of a better word, the proper protocols beforehand. Very fascinating. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, in Protestant churches, we'd probably do it once a month and we definitely were eating crackers and and some grape juice. Uh, oh, hey, um, Nate, as far as uh, the confession question goes, um, it's I can come at it from like a Catholic point of view because that's what I had to grow up doing. Um, it's much different. Um, people, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell people exactly how it is at my church. My church is the only one I've ever been to. Um, during the service, you go and you you wait in line and you just and you go up and you give confession in front of everybody. You're not in a hidden box with a little thing that the priest slides open. So you're just out there in front of everybody, like um, giving confession with another priest as the service is going on. Okay, and do you guys are you guys taking the Eucharist yet, or you guys have not been baptized yet? So you correct. We can't. Okay. Okay, fascinating. It used to be in the early that's really early years of the Christian yeah. church. Um, confession was something that was like as Adam was just describing it. You're in front of the you're in the front of the church, and but you're speaking directly to the priest while the rest of the service is going on. It used to be, to my understanding, the early years of the church, you got up and you confessed to everyone. You stood up in front and you <laughs> gave your confession to the entire church. Everyone heard what you said. I'm glad that's um, changed. Yeah, right. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't happen anymore uh for the most part, I guess. But yeah, now it's just you just you're just speaking quietly to the priest. Have you guys had the Eucharist um prior to becoming orthodox? Negative. Oh, well, I mean in Protestant, I, I don't right. call it the yeah. Eucharist, but I mean, I did the kind that they were retinate discussed. Yeah, where it's like great the, the skittle and... the skittles in the Arizona. <laughs> never had that <laughs> yet. <laughs> yeah, I've so never I'm, seen... I'm I'm curious because because this part was always fascinating to me because I because I actually grew up as like in one of the altar boys um in you know Roman Catholic Church. Uh oh. that yeah, yeah oh dude I've got horrible <laughs> stories but but as I understood it at that point once once the wine becomes the blood and once the Eucharist becomes the body you have to consume it like there's there's no option of throwing that's, it out or pouring it down correct. the drain so yeah. as an altar boy like i must have eaten my own weight in uh in eucharist crackers over the years our, our um, priest does that at the end and, and i always wondered it was it was sacrilege but i knew people i knew other altar boys that would just like take the in, the entire remainder 
of the Eucharists and just like bring them outside the church and like bring them home. And I always wondered, is there like a certain point in which like you take it off the premises or you get far enough away that it's it ceases to be the body of Christ or once it's converted within the the setting of either Orthodox or Catholic, once it turns into the body, is it the body forever or can it ever turn back into the Eucharist again? Or is this like a one-way ticket? Well, I know, for example, the, the um, I can't remember the, the, the technical name for it, but there's um, what's called blessed bread mm-hmm. that is brought out that um, and brought out and put in a, in a side of the church and anybody can go up and eat it. So it's, it's from the, what's called the lamb. It's from the, the, the piece of bread that is cut ceremonially. And there's a portion of it that is, is, is taken aside. And there's, there's a technical term for it that's escaping me, but um, we just call it blessed bread. And anybody well, remember church, usually that was reserved for the priest alone. He would have his own little version of the bread that he would cut into different pieces and eat them after very specific phrases. And then the rest of the actual church congregation got sort of like the mass produced little wafer versions and not the fancy like actual yeah. piece of bread. I believe there are parts that yeah, prospera, yeah. I believe there are parts that the priest eats throughout. I don't remember. That's not something I've been well studied on. But I know that that bread that's brought out that anybody can eat, you're supposed to eat every single crumb of it. And you're not supposed to drop. Like if if a crumb falls on the ground, you're supposed to eat that. Pick it up and eat it. There's no five-second rule with the body of Christ. (laughs) No, no. And anything that's not eaten, if you're not going to eat it, it has to be burned. So it's... yeah, I was going to take a stab at that, you know, your question of, you know, if you take it outside the premises of the church. So I think from an Orthodox perspective, as far as I understand it, you know, it, it's that it's a, it's a very rationalistic question. And you may not have a rationalistic answer, but I can say this much. If another believer, a devout um, Orthodox or even Catholic person sees you do that, it violates their conscience. And so that, that that's a perspective from which, you know, we wouldn't do that. Now, is there a rational answer as to if they transmute back and stuff? I, I, I don't, yeah, personally, I wouldn't, uh, it's hard hard to answer that question and things like that, yeah. But certainly to the believers watching, it is the body and blood of Christ. And so it violates their conscience, yeah. You, so you, uh, yeah. on the topic of Catholicism, because earlier, you know, there was a, a little bit, let's say, quote unquote, Catholic bashing. Uh, I'll, I'll put my viewpoint into this as well. And, you know, it's not to take any particular type of stance, but I think unofficially this is the, also the case among the Oriental Orthodox in, in the sense that they do view the Catholics as the Orthodox of the West. In other words, uh, and, and the Pope is, I mean, reg- regardless of specific views of the specific papacy, general, and, you know, generally there's a sense that okay, there is a Bishop of Rome and that is, you know, handed down in the Pope. And there is schism, so it is accepted there there is a break in fellowship, but there's been efforts at various levels to restore the fellowship. It's not, you know, obviously it's not borne too much fruit, but at the ground level, there's a lot of fellowship. And I personally, for example, yeah, that's why I call the Catholics as the Orthodox of the West. <laughs> Another thing that I, I guess the way that my grandparents being like the most religious people in my life, part of Opus Day. And I think this was a little bit tongue in cheek, but they always described to me that you can tell the Roman Catholic from other denominations and that the Roman Catholics believe the most of the stories from the Bible verbatim in like a literal sense. And I don't know how true that is, but but that's one of my favorite. I'm not going to say like a litmus test, but like a, just an interesting way to figure out where someone is 
within their religion on how much of the Bible is 100% literal down to like the most obvious example is did snakes ever talk to humans in a literal sense? And then you can get into, you know, did Noah and the ark actually exist and you know, everything that, that permeates through that. But I'm just curious in the Orthodox sense, is everything taken literal or is there some flex there? Is there different, you know, sides of it where like some Orthodox people take it literal, some take it allegorical. Great question, Thomas. I was taught everything of the Bible was completely literal. Well, so me I'm too. Really me curious, too. yeah, about orthodoxy. Well, there's parables, so those obviously aren't literal. Okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm there not. I'm some, not well, those are self-professed, though, right? Those are described yeah. as parables, as right. they're written about. But then there's the things that are like the Garden okay. of Eden being the okay. most, the most direct one for me is: did okay. snakes actually talk to people at some point in history, and then just stop doing that? This is why what Matt said earlier is the framing. It's not that we start from the Bible and we as an individual interpreter who comes to the text for the very first time. Orthodoxy starts from the tradition of the fathers. So there is a, a sort of a theological catechesis that the fathers of the church have given to the church. And of course, part of the catechesis is the fact that they use scriptures, but not only use scriptures, they are the ones who have given the scriptures to the church. But the, the tradition is what is taught. And uh, the scriptures have a special place in serving the tradition, but the tradition is what is taught as the faith. That is so fascinating. Yeah, I, I was definitely taught the Bible is, uh, well, sola scriptura or whatever you guys said. That's the literal word of Christ and everything in the Bible needs to be taken 100% as fact, literal. And there's no arguing with the Bible. And what you guys are saying is that you guys, first and foremost, not that the Bible is not important, that it's the tradition that's been passed down, and that's what's important or more yeah. important. That's so, really, so, really interesting. But the scriptures are a special place in the tradition because that's what the tradition attests as here are, are, are the, the entirety of what we teach. But within that entirety, we have raised up the scriptures to this special place of sort of canonical writings. Where does the apocrypha fit into that? Does does it hold the exactly same? Exactly my question. Next, thank you, Thomas. So the Orthodox Study Bible has um, most or all the Deuterocanonical books that are in it. The Orthodox Study Bible is longer than the Protestant Bible. It has more books um, there. So when you talk about the canon, what the the canon of Scripture, um, when the when the Scriptures were canonized, what the the council was doing was not yes i was going to say that the scripture is a subset of sacred tradition so they're not they're not in opposition to one another the interpretation of scripture is part of tradition um the uh so when when the when the scriptures were canonized when they decided what the canon is that what they weren't saying is these are the books that are true and all the other ones are not what they were saying is these are the books that we use in worship. These are the books that we use as part of the liturgical service. Yes. And so their validity then is, is, is a, a product of that because they're not using invalid or illegitimate books as part of their liturgical services. But they weren't, it wasn't that they were rubber stamping these books and saying, okay, these are the books now that, that are, are real and legitimate and all the other books are false. They actually had broadly three categories of books. They had the, the canon, which was like the core books, 
and then there was lots of books that were debated that were almost added to the canon and and then were not and some of those books that were not added to the canon which would have been because they were <clears throat> excuse me because they were not being used regularly in liturgical services they were treated as like a uh, like the next tier down which these are good books to read these are these are informative these provide context these are um, whether historical or theological context, they're still good, valuable books to read, and they're completely true. Um, like the Book of Enoch would would yeah. fall into that category. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then the third category of books would be like these are the ones you should not read at all. These ones are fake, false. Uh, these are fake news. Where, where would like um, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judah or the Gospel of Lilith? Where do those fit? Are those in like the heretical category, or are those just in the like this is for extra credit reading, but you don't have to read it as part of tradition i don't know all of them well so i don't know i think i'm pretty sure the gospel of thomas would be not that's yeah, I think one that i'm familiar that's with that's referring to the gnostic gospels which were not considered right. canonical or helpful by any of the bishops anywhere uh, aside from potentially a small minority you know but and also to mark matt to add to that in the canon the, the liturgical service of the church has a implicit hierarchy in how we read scripture so it's not that every single book has equal value in, in in sort of a sort of our modern sense um but you know you, you as a service starts you read the prophets you read the old testament but then it builds up and then as the service really starts you read the epistles but then as the service really enters sort of its meaty portion then you read the gospels which are sort of the crowning uh scriptural revelation of in the canon so there is this hierarchy uh in how the scriptures are also used and then also different bishops you know the, the Slavs and the Greeks, uh, or different uh, in the Syriacs, uh, the, the Alexandrians, even what scriptures they choose for their lectionary is sort of how that specific tradition understood uh, they needed to explain the tradition to their people. So, yeah, so there's that so, aspect too. So I've got an, another heresy-related question, which at least in the in the Catholic world, the answer to this one is just that the the devil did it to trick people, and I'm I'm curious what the Orthodox um, sort of how to reconcile, for example, the ball cycle or, um, you know, Apollo or Mithra or some of the historical mythological figures that sort of predate, but also set up the original concept of holy trinities and, and death rebirth cycle. Um, so like, the, is that considered heresy? Is there an explanation for it within the Orthodox world? Or is it like an, an ignored thing that you just don't talk about? No, it's actually in the Orthodox world, it's actually talked about and recognized and acknowledged much more than anywhere I've ever seen in the Protestant world, at least. It's essentially those things are all considered demonic propaganda. They're all... Um, As in the, are, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's essentially that the devil put it there to trick you later, you know, in the future. Right. Where, where, where those things have parallels to, for example, the Trinity would be in that... The, the Trinity pre-existed that, and human understanding of the Trinity pre-existed those things. And so those things are a perversion of the good, where uh, various demons... Well, let me back up. So the way the Orthodox world understands demons, demons obviously are, are fallen angels, and all of these, um, Baal and Apollo and Zeus, these are... It's not that these are fake gods. The Orthodox... Orthodoxy recognizes them as yeah. Cooper and I have the same mind. He he steals all my ideas. Um, <laughs> the uh, 
uh, orthodoxy recognizes these as real gods. These are these are real lowercase g gods. They're demons who uh, who fell and who are drawing, dragging humanity away from the true God. So they set up their own systems of worship that are bastardized, ripped off versions of um, of actual true worship. And uh, if you want if you want a, a real deep dive into this, I'd recommend the Lord of Spirits podcast. Uh, it's basically at least the first dozen episodes or so are like two or three hour long deep dives by two Orthodox priests diving into like, what are the Nephilim and what does, what are demons? What are giants? All those kinds of things. It's a very, very interesting. Do do dinosaurs fit into that same bucket too? You might hear some conversation about them. Um, They talk about uh, 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 Halloween and uh, werewolves and all these different things in like the, the historical traditions that they came from. Um, one thing I wanted to say, it's, it's kind of tangentially <laughs> related is, um, we were talking about scripture and you're talking about, did stuff literally happen? Was these things literally, literally real? And, and you mentioned the serpent, like was a serpent actually the snake talk, talking? Yeah. Did the snake literal. talk? So the way that Semitic languages work is they don't have vowels. So they have, um, essentially they have, they have just consonants. And then you fit the vowels in around them, the different vowel sounds around them. Um, so when you're reading them, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's just like yes. space. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, um, when you're when you're reading a, a Semitic text to 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 actually understand, you have to have a lot of context to be able to interpret some of these words because you have the the I'm, I'm butchering this actual explanation. Uh, uh, an actual um, expert in languages would be cringing right now but essentially you get a lot of wordplay in many of these writings because you can have uh the same written uh script can mean multiple different things because it depends on which vowel sounds you wrap around the consonant sounds to put it in in english terms and the word that's used there that's translated often serpent is can also be translated shining one and it can also be translated something like deceiver so and it can be translated serpent those three translations are all valid translations of that word and you would normally based on context pick out which one it is but there's um uh, i i think it's it's probably legitimate to believe that whoever wrote the book wrote it with that as a basically like a pun Almost. So you can understand this as a deceiver, a shining one, and a serpent. You can understand it as all three or any of the above. Um, so to the question of is uh, is the Bible all literally true? No, the things that are meant to be read as literally true are literally true. The things Does... that are meant to be read as, as metaphor are metaphor. The things that are meant to be read as symbology are symbology. It's kind of a cop-out answer, but that's that's the way that... Orthodox would approach. Well, and, and another just slightly heretical question on this, but if if the Bible, if we're saying the Bible was written in a way that it can be interpreted three different ways, depending on your context and how you want to read it, does that not imply some esotericism or even some occultism within the Bible in that here's this exoteric version 
of a snake in a tree, but the esoteric is you have to realize that it might be the shining one, which might be a reference to Lucifer. Or it might be a reference to some other thing. To me, that almost sounds the same way of like you have to be in the secret society in order to have eyes that can see. Well, I, I think that would be one issue that we have with Protestantism. And again, I'm not trying to knock it by any means, but just for an educational point here, if you've got the people that wrote some of these things and you've got this tradition that's passed down by them to their spiritual children over and over and over now to us, essentially, is as strange as that might sound, it, we at least have a source to go to to understand what what a certain scripture means or what did they mean when they said this. And I, I've never found out so much about what translations, how things got lost in various translations over the last several centuries as I have since I've become Orthodox because that's, like Matt just alluded to, that's extremely important. And so growing up Protestant and reading, well, that's a snake. I guess a snake talked. That's that's not the end of the story. There's much more to that. And you can dig further back. And our church does dig further back because it was the original church. And so we have resources at least to, to understand. It's not like Gnostic where there's special hidden knowledge that no one's going to know. Well, plenty of people will know because it's been passed down since they were written. So that helps us for, for my perspective. Interesting. And I would say re response to Cooper there. Um, technically you could, in, in that, uh, context, secret society will let you read their book, except it'll all be encoded unless you're given that Rosetta stone to, in, you know, to decipher everything. Technically you can read it, but you just won't know what the heck you're reading until you get that, that secret handshake, you know, guide for it. Well, see, in reading, reading the spiritual fathers and the saints and everything, it's like Alex Jones would say, we've got the documents. So it's all here. <laughs> I'll say something that's nice and controversial here. So uh, when you say secret society, I've come to realize that that by and large, secret society kind of winds up being a euphemism for a, a, a particular tribe. And the... <laughs> I like to just call it an intelligence agency. It's just a fancy <laughs> right, name for an intelligence right, right, agency. Right. But... Um, there's this perception that I had that, uh, that I, I had for a, until the last couple of years that Christianity was a tradition that began in uh, in AD 33, that Christianity began shortly after Christ. So Antioch was where they were first called Christians. Um, prior to that, it was called the Way. They were considered followers of the Way, and then they started derogatively um, calling them or derogatorily calling them uh, uh, Christians, followers of Christ, and so they embraced it, and then that's what became Christianity. That is um, the beginning of the Church, but the church is the continuation of an earlier tradition. So uh, because we're on YouTube, I'll, I'll kind of try to not get too blunt with some of this stuff. But Cancel um, our channel, dude. I don't care. Okay. Orthodox Christians are the actual Jews. So the Jewish yeah, tradition of the Old Testament is yeah. the Orthodox Christianity is the continuation of that tradition. Judaism, there was many Judaisms. And today, the, what, what's called Judaism is a newer tradition than Orthodox Christianity. So Orthodox Christianity did not begin in the New Testament. That's when the church was formed. But the church was a continuation of, or a, a reflection of, Israel prior to that. And Israel was a made nation. 
Israel was not a an ethnic category. Israel was a nation literally created by God. And the, the, the people who were brought into Israel and made into Israel had a whole bunch of different ethnicities. They had a whole bunch, there was a bunch of different ethnic backgrounds. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So the, <laughs> the, there's, there's this, this persistent, and I, there's, it's not a coincidence, there's this persistent notion that somehow uh, Christianity is the younger brother and Judaism is the older brother and Christianity is an offshoot of Judaism. And it's exactly the other way around. Mm -hmm. Judaism, what we know today as Judaism was a response, explicitly a response to Christianity. Fascinating. I, I don't know if you guys have an answer to this, but where does, um, or if it's any different than regular Christianity, where do, where does Islam fit into this? It's a Christian heresy. It's a, Arianism, it's an Arian Christian heresy, which simply Arian Arianism is the belief that that Christ was a created being. That Christ was a created being. Is a creature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I see. I understand what you're saying. So he's not divine. He's not a piece of God. Gotcha. Right. He's not. Yeah. He's not a, a a a person of the Trinity. He was a a, a person. Who was, who, was, who was created by God. He could have been a divine person, but he was created by God. He was not co-eternal with God. So I was curious about um, iconography. I was going to, I know I'm jumping totally in a different direction, but I had an uncle. Uh, well, I only have one uncle, I guess. Uh, he was Russian Orthodox for a while, and he gave me a picture of a saint and my mom grabbed it broke it burned oh. it <laughs> the way she said it was demonic and so in my when i grew up <laughs> i i was a theism that you're not supposed to be praying to icons or you know different pictures of things anyways i'm curious about it and what is it that you're doing do you like when you pray uh, do you guys pray to them? You're, what is we're, we're, I, we're not worshiping them or doing anything know. like that. We're we're venerating them. We're just honoring them. It's no different than if uh, you're a little kid and your dad went away to Iraq to go fight in the war. It's no different than you would go up before bedtime with your mom and say, "Kiss your kiss the picture of your dad goodnight" because you love him. There's no, that, that's the way that I've been taught to explain it, and it's just. It's one of those things that's so easy. It takes two seconds to, to just people will be like, "Oh, you're worshiping icons. It's evil. La la la. la. It's uh, I, you know, I um, idol worship stuff like that." It's. It would be like if you Nate, if you would have told your mom, um, "Mom, uh, I've got a big test coming up, or I've got this trial I'm going through. Would you pray for me?" Right? That's not idolizing your mom. You're asking her as as a being that you respect to pray for you to, to Christ. And so the saints are recognized as men and women. I love it that there's, there's a lot of women saints that achieved a better theosis or a closer, uh, a cl they got closer to Christ than certainly any of us on this panel. And so if they're already in paradise, why would you not ask them to pray for you? I'm not saying St. Seraphim, I'm not saying dear St. Seraphim, Holy, you know, I'm not praying to him. I'm asking him to pray for me, if that makes sense. 
There's yeah, a difference does. between uh, worship and veneration, and this is a, a distinction that isn't really made in, in Protestantism at all. Um, so worship is actually a... Um, it actually involves a meal. Worship is actually... Uh, it involves sacrifice, and sacrifice is a meal. So worship is, is communing. It's a, it's a communal process. You're communing with your God, um, and you're, you're sacrificing. Um, so there's kind of some kind of profound as an aside and that when we are now worshiping God and we're, we're engaged in the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice that we are presenting as a meal with him. Um, there's, there's, you could go down a rabbit hole here about hospitality in the Middle East, why it's such a big deal. Um, because that's what worship was. Uh, all these, all these pagan gods and everything, worshiping them always involved feasting. It was all wrapped around the idea of sharing a meal. So this is why the Eucharist is so significant. Eucharist, participating in the Eucharist is, is worshiping God. But praying um, in front of an icon and venerating an icon, kissing an icon, like the other guy said, is not worshiping it. The Orthodox don't believe that there's like, um, that the icon is anything except for wood or canvas with paint. It's not like we think it's, it's magical or anything. Now, icons, certain icons do have miracles associated with them. There are icons that perpetually stream myrrh, and the, you, there, you, there's no explanation. There's no naturalistic explanation for why that is. There's icons that have been associated with healing. Um, but the, uh, so St. Luke from the Bible, who wrote the, the book of Luke, he was an iconographer. He, um, he the, I think tradition holds that he painted the first icon of Christ, if I remember right. Mm. Um, but uh, I was going to say, um, so I was going to say something related to um, iconography and praying. Oh, so um, in the book of Mark, uh, there's a verse that says uh, that God is God, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. And so this is something probably that will differentiate orthodoxy from uh, definitely a lot of the the, um, the the Protestant worldviews I grew up around. We don't believe that the saints are dead. They're alive. Their, their physical bodies have died, but they're still alive. And you can see this in Revelation when it talks about the prayers of the saints going up and the saints looking at people on earth. They're aware of us somehow, and they're aware of the torment that we're going through, and they're saying, telling God how long, like how long are you going to keep this going? And it's they're praying and they're interceding for us. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, so... Yeah. So they're, they are still alive. So when we pray to them, we're, like they said, we're praying to a friend. We're praying to um, not just a friend, but the Bible says the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So it's, it's better for you to have a righteous person pray for you than a less righteous person. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have the less righteous person pray for you, but the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So asking a, a saint, one of the the most righteous people to pray for you is that's a very very powerful intercessor that can can help you particularly if you have a, a saint who maybe struggled with a particular thing that you struggle with you might have had a saint that um, like saint mary of egypt was um like a, a completely degenerate prostitute um before her conversion so someone who struggled with that could pray to saint mary of egypt and saint mary will have a, be able to relate to you in a way that that perhaps another saint wouldn't be able to because she understands that struggle. 
That's really fascinating. And yeah. it would make sense too with what you guys were saying earlier that we're all people, but we are trying to become almost like Christ-like. Um, that that was something fascinating that you said. It's like the humans could heal and that you are becoming um, almost, you're almost, because it's very, the wording at least is different with Protestantism. And the emphasis is very much like, you're not doing shit. You're, you're a vessel, you're a tool, you're basically nothing. It's only Christ through you that does these things. But the, at least maybe that might be the same and you're going to, just the way you guys word it and approach it sounds different. And, and part of it, and again, this is, I'm only expressing this from my lived experience of, of to sound like a leftist, uh, my lived experience uh, in Protestant, the, the, the big church that I grew up in, part of what you just said, Nate, is because I think there's this like, once saved, always saved is, is a thing I used to hear. And it's like, well, if you're saved, then you're good. You can sin, but you but Christ died for those sins, so you're good. But if if it's an ongoing lifelong process and then past this life, obviously, there is a goal to to become, to repent and to and to head into the direction of being Christ like. And so if you can recognize that there's people that have come before you that got really close to achieving that and on some level it's and they can heal people there's some understanding of like this is humanly possible to do i'm struggling to get there but that's a that's a nice goal to have in front of me rather than say well i've been saved so i can do whatever i want it's already been forgiven that sounds more catholic to me but (laughs) (laughs) there's a there's a, a false dichotomy that much of the west um has fallen into uh between faith and works are you saved by faith or are you saved by works? Yeah. And um, the irony here is that the people who say that you're saved by faith, you can't really differentiate their description or their their depiction of faith in a way that makes it not a work. So if like if your if your job is just to have faith, well, having faith would be a work. So it the 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 the, the false dichotomy falls apart. In reality, it's both. And this is something that you encounter a lot when you when you get into orthodoxy. It's a kind of a running joke that it's not either or, it's both and. Uh, and this is why earlier Paul brought up how um, there's the, 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 the Western emphasis on the judicial nature of salvation. And, and it's not that salvation doesn't have a judicial character to it. It's not that there isn't a, a legal aspect to it. Obviously, the Bible uses lots of legal language in reference to it. But... Um, in reality, it's not you're not saved by faith and you're not saved by works. If you read every time the subject comes up all throughout the New Testament, you'll the writer will refer to both of them in in close succession. They'll say you're saved by um, you'll save by faith, and then right afterwards he'll talk about the works. and And it's even there's even this explicit verse that says work out your faith in fear and trembling. So we are participants in this process. It's the process wouldn't be possible without Christ and his incarnation and his sacrifice and and then him reaching out to us, but it's up to us to reach back, and it's up to us to pursue him as he pursues us. The two of them work in synergy together. It's a synergistic process. So um, you are actually physically, there's one last thing, you're really, you, you are physically changed, physically and spiritually changed, when you do things like praying and fasting and giving alms and receiving the Eucharist, 
these things actually physically change you. They, they, they physically change your person and they change you spiritually. You are, are, are tangibly, um, uh, uh, metaphysically changed by doing them. So it's not that doing them is an obligation and it's like you have to go through this checklist of things. Doing these things is an opportunity. These are actually things that you can do that will change you for the better. These are these are a, a, a grace that's given to us that we can participate in these different actions. And in so doing, we are participating in the energies of Christ and, and our human nature is being divinized. Yeah. Hmm. I was gonna to add to that, um, you know, since I've experienced both traditions or all many traditions, the dichotomy between faith and works makes sense. But, but, or at least it made sense for me when I realized that when people say faith, they actually mean belief, you know, and that then it completely made sense. I'm like, oh, okay, they're talking about belief, and belief is what I call a mental work. You know, you're believing in certain attributes about who God is or who Jesus, the work of Christ on the cross, and all of that. And 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 I came then, you know, as I moved into orthodoxy, I came to understand that faith is not sort of there's this mental work here and the physical work that's separate. It's an integrated thing. There is a mental belief, but there's also physical actions and when they go hand in hand, that is what true faith looks like. Faith in that context is more accurately translated faithfulness. Right. It's the the act of being faithful. It's not just believing something, which even even believing, um, I would even tell someone who, who who said that that faith is is believing. I would even say that believing, yeah, like, like Cable says here, believe is nothing without action. To believe something, to truly believe something, implies action. Because if you believe something, but then you act in a way that's contradictory to that belief, you didn't actually believe that. You thought that. So there's thinking, and then there's believing, and then there's faith. And you can think the right thoughts, which is really what a lot of, of especially the Protestantism that I came out of, a lot of it revolved around thinking the right thoughts. You need to have a systematic theology that breaks down all of the doctrines, you need to go through and you need to list them off one by one and be able and to know them and to understand them and then like give mental assent to them. Say, yes, I think those thoughts. I think the proper thoughts. Therefore, I am a blank Christian, um, an insert name here, Christian. But Orthodox Christianity is is um, a, um, a fusion of not just thinking and believing and acting, but it's all of them together. This is why it was originally called the way, because mm. it was a, a the way that you would that that you you behave. There's it's a it's a it's a particular praxis. We talked about being catechumens. We've been catechumens for a year year or so, which is pretty common nowadays. But early on, catechesis would often be three, five, ten years, because it wasn't just a matter of passing on knowledge. It wasn't that you just had to have enough flashcards that you could memorize and then you would be qualified to become a Christian. You needed to live with Christians and see how Christians lived and live like they did to the point where you understood it and you could do it yourself. Not that you'd be separated from the church, but that you could, um, you're, 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 you're literally growing up in the faith. You're starting as a child in the faith and then you're through enough time and enough experience and enough practice, you're learning how to live the faith out. And then you're baptized. So today we've—a lot of people are, are surprised when they hear you and you've been a catechumen for a year or a year and a half or something like that. It's unusual because typically most churches you can kind of just go join. Um, 
but uh, but even that orthodoxy doesn't change a lot. It changes very very slowly over time. The uh, joke I heard recently is that there's there's three different saints who are called the theologian. There's Saint John the theologian. There was Saint Gregory the theologian, and then there was Saint Simeon the new theologian. And Saint Simeon the new theologian lived in I believe the eighth or ninth century. So that shows you that the, from the perspective of orthodoxy, the new theologian lived eleven or twelve hundred years ago. Orthodoxy doesn't change a lot over over long periods of time. Or you could just um, say uh, how many how many orthodox priests does it take to change a light bulb? Change. What's change? Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> I, I wanted to respond to something that Mister Paranoid American asked uh, brought up earlier um, on the subject of yeah uh, the contemporary uh, you know accounts of you know different pagan religions. Yeah, and, and one account is sort of, it could be demonic. The other account, uh, which, which I also hold to, is that people all over the world had that spark of, uh, let's say, the kernel of understanding of the understanding of the creator, however dimly, you know, however dim their vision was. And so they were clawing their way back to God. And all those accounts that you see are sort of these partial accounts of people trying to reconstruct without the full revelation of Christ, who God is and who the creator was, so, which is why St. Paul in the, in the book of Acts, he says, you know, this God that you've labeled as the unknown God, let me tell you about him. So, you know, Paul doesn't say that, that that's some other God, um, but he's sort of recognizing that there is that in, innate drive towards truth that some people respond to better than others, and they create these things. And obviously, it's per, it, can, it can enter into perversions and all of that, but uh, the, there's also that sort of viewpoint. Uh, and then the other one is on the, on the talking snake. Uh, I was thinking... Um, so it's not the fact that there is a miraculous occurrence that makes something, uh, you know, is that real or not. Uh, uh, for example, the core core tenets of our faith, the virgin birth, the resurrection of a man from the dead, the incarnation of God as man. I mean, these are all miraculous things, which we believe to be literally true. Uh, but but then just on the topic of what is literal or not, is not whether something is miraculous or not, but whether that genre supports it and whether the traditional teaching of the church says it's literal or not kind of thing i'm just sort of i'm i'm curious too on on like the core tent because again speaking from roman catholic my entire world view of of christ growing up was all about original sin and it was more like you've done something really bad and it was like before you were even born but Mm -hmm. now you just have to apologize for indefinitely Otherwise, you don't get to, you know, go to heaven at the end. It's, I mean, oversimplifying it quite a bit, but I'm curious, is there that same concept of original sin uh, with an orthodox? And you're, you're shaking your head, no buck. And and on, on top of the original sin, another thing that I never was able to wrap my head around um, was the unforgivable sin, which was the denial of the Holy Spirit, which depending on who mm. your pastor is and what church you go to can mean a bunch of different things. But those ones always felt like, these like secret things that were never fully explained. And I'm curious, you know, what's the Orthodox stance on original sin and unforgivable sin? So original sin is a, this has actually been a kind of fairly hotly debated uh, subject lately. Um, You'll hear, you'll see two, two different terms that are often used here. There's original sin and there's ancestral sin. Yeah. And it might seem at first that it's just kind of semantics, but there's a, there's a distinction um, so original sin is, is, is broadly understood as Adam sinned, and because of him, sin entered the world, and then we are now subject to sin, and our nature has changed, 
to where we now bear that evil and we are in some sense guilty for yeah. sin from the moment that we enter the world. There's elements of that that are orthodox, but the big difference is that orthodox do not believe that we are guilty of another person's sin. Yes. So it doesn't matter who that person is. So we are subject to the effects of sin. It says the wages of sin are, are death. That's not just a punishment. That's the natural consequence of it. Because sin is to sin is to miss the mark. So you could think of it as like, as as like unplugging yourself from God. If God is the source of life and you unplug yourself from Him, the consequence of that is you're going to die. Right. With sin so, basically meaning without something that's without God. Right. Yes, it's the yes. absence that we we believe that that evil does not have ontological status. Evil is not something that exists. Evil is a negation of the good. It's like a shadow. It's like there's, darkness. There's no such thing as darkness. It's the absence of light. If, right. If that makes sense. If there's no such thing as cold. There's just the absence of heat. And then the original guilt phrase actually captures it, what Matt, you were saying, because with the original sin as it is used in the West, and now when I say West, I mean Catholics and Protestants together. They have a very similar view on this. They just... Uh, by default mean original guilt but the the orthodox of any tradition don't believe in that sense yeah so right we are not we're not guilty of adam's sin but we are subject to the effects of adam's sin which means and part of that is having a natural inclination towards sinning you might say we have a like a, cl a clouded noose noose being the 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 organ of the heart that, that the heart or the mind is typically referring to we are um, it's difficult for us to ascertain spiritual things. So we're kind of groping around blindly in the dark and we have a tendency to, um, it, it's kind of like having a, having a, a, a disease that, that makes, that gives you inclinations in a particular direction. Um, so this is why, again, Buck referred earlier to the, the hospital being a, uh, a hospital or the, the church being a hospital for sinners. So sin is seen as a disease. It's like a disease that we are subject to, and you go to the hospital to get your healing protocol in a, in a, in a sense. You could think of it that way, kind of an analogy. No analogies are perfect, but it's it, it kind of in that, in that sense. So, yeah, we are not guilty of Adam's sin. No one is guilty of anyone else's sin. But you can see where if you start from that premise, then you're naturally going to look at salvation then as necessarily going to be a legal transaction. And so if you have those presuppositions that you're bringing to bear, then you're going to reverse engineer all the rest of your theology to fit those things, and you're going to miss out on really key facets of the nature of Christ, the nature of the Trinity, the, the, the purpose of the incarnation, um, the harrowing of hell when, when yeah, Christ died. I'd never heard the harrowing of hell in, in all of my years as a very well-studied Protestant. The doctrine did not exist anywhere in, in anything that I'd encountered. So yeah, like, all I'd hear is that Jesus conquered death, and that's and uh, that so was the extent of it. Specifically, yeah. the way that he conquered death, his, his death was not like, oh, the demons finally caught up to him. Oh, man, he, he kept him off for long enough, but they finally got to him, man. It's sad. But don't worry, don't worry. He he rose again on the third day. It's all good. You know, he paid the price for us. It's all it's okay. And this story has a happy ending. That's no. When he died, he descended into hell. And he blew down the gates of hell and he, and he freed from captivity in hell, all the patriarchs, all of the, the believers prior to that time who were there and Adam and in Eve. hell and Adam and Eve who were Interesting. there in hell. 
Yeah, I was going to yes. ask about that because I watched a YouTube video. I think it was like a couple of years. Uh, yeah, it was a couple of years ago. And it was a Orthodox priest explaining the difference between Orthodoxy and Protestantism. And maybe I misunderstood him, but he basically, it, it almost sounded like there wasn't a hell. It well, almost sounded like Hades. Fine universalism. I actually just listened to someone discuss this. Matt, do you have top any thoughts before any of you guys before I? I didn't hear your. I didn't hear your last sentence. What did you say, Nate? It sounded like borderline universalism. To me. So, so, so oh. do do we have another couple of hours? So that, that's another <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> hot button um, topic. Yeah. You guys go for it. I'll, I'll give my views at the end. Yeah. Yeah, I. Uh, I want to reiterate here that like what Buck said earlier, that, that I don't speak for the church and um, I'm not an expert in orthodoxy. I'm not even an orthodox Christian. I'm a catechumen. Um, so I, I can't really speak to universalism. My understanding is that it is not something that is taught by the church. There were some fathers who either, either um, wrote about it or contemplated it and it's it's not something that is, to my understanding, it's not something that is denied by the church. It's not something that's categorically said, no, this is not the case. But it's not something that we can say is the case or could possibly be the case. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. um, like, we're not leaving the possibility open that it could be the case, but we're also not saying, no, it's not the case. Um, so the, so, 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 yes, so, we're not universalists. Well, I think that this is where a controversy could be the case because there were certainly some fathers uh, who were, uh, you know, who were very um, vocally universalist, even within the uh, Constantinople, Antiochian, Alexandrian traditions, but the more Byzantine side, and they were never condemned by any of the councils that they attended, even if their views were well known. So holding the possibility certainly orthodox is what I've understood, even from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. Now, from my own perspective, the Syriac faith, um, one of the most universal saints is Saint Isaac of Nineveh. So he's not only a saint in the Oriental faith, but he's also a saint in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Saint, saint Isaac of, of Nineveh or Saint Isaac the Syrian goes by two names. Um, he was, all his writings exude universalism and none of his contemporaries took issue with any of that aspect of it. So, and he's considered a universal saint of the church. This is not, again, I'm not speaking for the church or dogmatically, but I lean towards that in my own understanding. It's not a condemned view. And neither was um, the view that, oh, you cannot be a universalist ever affirmed anywhere dogmatically. As Cooper is pointing out in the in the chat, um, Origen was a, a father of the church who was condemned and one of his teachings was universalism. Um, that's I, that's the extent of my knowledge about him, really. Like, yeah. I, I remember I steal all my ideas from Cooper, but Cooper's or, or sorry, Cooper steals all his ideas from me. But uh, but but he's more re well read than I am. Um, so it's again, it's something that I um, I I can't make a make a dogmatic statement either way. I'll say that my personal opinion is um, I would like it if that was the case. I think it would be cool, um, but. I also see major issues with it. Um, one thing I will say that's very interesting that to me that I learned about orthodoxy that kind of blew my mind coming from a Protestant background was that 
um, orthodoxy believes that uh, heaven and hell are the same place. Mm-hmm. And so the, the experience, it's in the presence of God. So the way that you experience the presence of God depends on how, you're, how you lived your life in this life. So if you lived your life in, as we said, a life of sin, so you're rejecting God, you're actively rejecting him and pushing him away, then being in his presence is going to be torture to you. You're not going to want to be there. But if you live this life seeking him and wanting him and pursuing him, then being in his presence is going to be heavenly. I mean, one way you could think about it is that, um, like for me, I love hot weather. The hotter, the better. I love. I lived in Southern California. It was amazing. I love being out in the desert. My wife can't stand it. She likes gray and cloudy and maybe a little bit of rain. I grew up in Washington State. Rain makes me lose my mind. I go crazy. So if the weather is rainy and, and cool, then my wife is happy. She's, it's great. This is, this is like heaven to her. To me, it's hell. If the weather is super just broiling hot outside, you know, 110 degrees, 10% humidity, I'm in heaven. I'm going to sit out there and just I, I'm, I'm going to love it, and she's going to be in hell. So if you um, both go to heaven together, what's the weather going to be? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that kind of heat and light she'll be okay with. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I want to say I, I agree with that characterization of heaven and hell completely. So universalism, a fair understanding of universalism is not that hell doesn't exist, but that uh, it is hard to affirm that someone would experience hell even eternally, that they would eternally keep rejecting God forever. Interesting. That is a very interesting way of putting it. To, to me, honestly, I don't want to – this isn't to be flippant, but – I could imagine that, like, my own personal hell might just be stuck in, like, an infinitely long Catholic mass where you just have to keep, like, kneeling and standing up and kneeling and standing up and you're not allowed to talk or sneeze or anything. That does sound like a possible hell. Well, there's basically no kneeling in an Orthodox liturgy. Yeah, you just stand. You just stand the whole time. Unless you're... I don't know if that's worse or better, to be honest. (laughs) For, For in an infinite amount of time, at least. Fascinating. Uh, do you guys have some closing thoughts? I know I, I told you guys I was only going to keep you an hour and a half. We're getting a little bit past that. Um, I had one last question for you, and I think this is a pretty easy one, uh, because I, I see a lot of the woke churches have uh, their, if you look at them, uh, they're shrinking in size right now, and it seems like uh, I think actually the only real denomination of Christianity that's growing right now is orthodoxy, which is really fascinating. Actually, I had another question. Are you guys good to go another like 10 minutes? I yeah, don't know. Like quickly. Is yeah, everybody good? Nice. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, so I did want to hear your guys' question on why orthodoxy is growing and why kind of milk toast churches are dying. I think that, but I think this is a pretty easy answer. <laughs> Uh, I mean, this is again, personal experience and, and my own opinion, but I think it's because we're entering the last three years have kind of shown us that the, the enlightenment and, and, and hard reason and, and evidence and things of that nature aren't particularly something that culture or societies anymore hold as, as, as a strong value. 
And so even on the left, there's a, there's a search for spirituality. When I, I, I think we're entering a spiritual age. So on the left, when you were talk, about to talk about woke stuff, a lot of what they do is spiritual and there, it's not based in ev- evidence, excuse me, or reason or anything like that. And so I think we're headed into a direction of spirituality as broadly over, over society. And those of us who are looking for truth, there's a natural pull in that direction. And I think if you keep searching and searching for truth, in my personal opinion, you're going to end up at orthodoxy. And that's seen as people, you know, like, for instance, Matt said, and and Adam did too, when you look around over the last several years and you think something's off, this isn't, we could present facts and reason and logic in our charts, and that doesn't work. And so this is a spiritual nature. So if you looked at the last three years as a materialist, then you've kind of lost your way a little bit and there's nothing you're not improving anything nothing's working so in my personal opinion it's a spiritual issue the left has gone spiritual and you know there's jokes even and and there's some truth to this like dr fauci might have been their 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 saint and the the i don't want to get you in trouble the medical interventions might have been their eucharist the vaccine go hard man go hard yeah the, the mask was was there a cross, things like that. That's all spiritual. And so, but it's false spirituality. It's demonic spirituality. So if you're looking what could oppose that and you keep searching and searching and searching, well, then you get to Orthodox Christianity and it's never changed. There's been a spiritual battle since day one and we're, we're just witnessing it now. And if you pull away from certain enlightenment principles, you're able to see, wait a second, the the things I thought before weren't necessarily true. This isn't a material issue. It's spiritual. So which direction do I go here? Unfortunately, a lot of people have gone off the rails into a crazy direction. And that's that's because society, media, NGOs, government, all of that is 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 promoting the work of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist is working through all of those entities. And there's there's for me one true path to go the opposite direction, and that's the Orthodox Church. So I think that's kind of what's 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 uh, started to swell the popularity of orthodoxy and in little things. But this is this is what I just discussed manifesting itself in little ways. My particular church, Matt's particular church, never closed during 2020. There was no issue with the jab or mask. Ours and either, and that's our, why I stayed at my church because all said, the normal churches closed around me. And my priest said, anyone who needs medical write-ups or for for the uh, rejection of it at your job i can do all of that for you so there's this like sense of like wow this is like real there's this and that's a real kind of tangent it's a almost a materialist way of looking at it like wow it'll get me out of this thing i don't want to do but it spoke to a bigger symbolism and a bigger spirituality like this is where i'm headed to because i see the opposite of it and it's faltering in in a way there's room for optimism here because you see the crazy woke stuff it can't win it just it just won't we know that how this is going to end it could be painful along the way but it can't win because their their spirituality is based on demonic evil and in my opinion ours isn't so after that buck you know like two years ago on my facebook i posted like something exactly that i'll just read it out it's two sentences I, I said and just like that their thing which and you, you guys know what the thing is 
has now become their Eucharist, conferring salvation from all ailments and being their medicine of immortality. They have their faith, their morals, their prophets, their yes. rituals, and their messianic expectation all in place. Yep, and none of it based in science, fact, or reason. All of it spiritual. That's uh, that's perfect, Paul. That's like one of the best. I've I've heard that explained um, a bunch of ways, and that that was really really good. You did it in two sentences. You should just you should try to get it down to one, and it'd be even better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to leave us on a hardball instead of a softball. If that's okay, but but uh, it sounds like um, we were talking about Israel being. Not just uh, a certain I've got area, but with that too. Yeah, but but an actual controversial. So an actual area given by God. So I'm curious, what's the Orthodox position on Zionism or like the Balfour Declaration? <laughs> You'll find <laughs> like few... is Orthodox pro Rothschild or what? Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, as Buck said that when he first uh, attended our church and uh, started was talking to the priest, he was still trying to figure out what orthodoxy was and he he described some of his his political leanings and our priest said oh you won't find any bigger enemy of communists than orthodox christians yeah yeah it's it's uh i've i've i don't want to equate orthodoxy with noticing they are not the same necessarily but since i became orthodox and began spending time in orthodox circles I have been doing a whole lot more noticing and a lot of the people around me have been as well. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's right there all the time, man. It's, mm-hmm. it's plain to see. That is interesting, man. Yeah. I was going to ask you guys, cause I have a, I have a good friend and he is from a different type of Orthodox church. Um, I was going to ask you guys about this too. Uh, he's uh, a member of the old believers. If you guys know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, really smart guy, really cool guy. And, uh, one time, I don't know how he even mentioned it. Cause he comes anyways, I don't want to give too much details. I don't want to give him away, but, um, he was like, not dude. he goes, he goes, we hate Israel. Uh, he says specifically it's, it's pretty evil. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I was going to ask your guys is if, if you guys felt that same way. Cause I know the old believers might be a little different than you guys. Um, I don't, the old believers but, are a yeah. uh, they're an offshoot of um, Russian Orthodoxy. From they had a, a a split in I think it was the 1700s over um, it was it was over there was a, f- a few different things that um, were kind of the source of the split, but it um, they're a little more. My understanding of them is that they're they're essentially um, Orthodox in a lot of ways, but they they have a lot they have extra stuff they add to it. They're more um, like local folk superstitions and that kind of thing. That's my understanding of them. Is that the old rightist thing? Or is that different, Matt? I'm not sure. So I know specifically, that, um, that this Dugan happened in Russia. An old ah. ah, okay. Okay. See, this happened in Russia. The story that I know. Oh, sorry. Who was talking? <laughs> Go ahead. Oh. Yeah, you know, I was just gonna, I was going to answer your question about Israel. So I, I'm an ANCAP, an anarcho-capitalist, and so I oppose all states. Uh, and so Israel is one of them. Um, you know, I haven't yet fa- convinced uh, Orthodox theologians in my tradition to, uh, to yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I have ongoing conversations, let's say, with priests and theologians in my tradition about anarcho-capitalism. And it, it's, it's a, you know, it's obviously there's no dogmatic viewpoint on that, but uh, I think it's one of my life's calling 
to to bring the church to engage with that topic seriously. I've been uh, in uh, the basement getting coffee after uh, church. I, me, I've been uh, borderline offended by what I've talked to some people about down there. So yeah, <laughs> they're not too into it where I where I hang out. And that's Adam. Wow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I. Uh, it's funny. I you, you said Paul, you're you're an AMCAP because it was, it was actually um, me moving from an AMCAP. I. I so this is a whole this is a long podcast by itself but i i went down the the mentors mold bug pathway for a while and um ended up being basically fully converted to monarchy and uh and that was actually what led me into the church it was the the connections between um uh, yeah i don't i don't go too far down yeah just monarchy and, and orthodox little... church have yeah yeah <laughs> Let's let's hash this out on some podcast, but uh, yeah, yeah, we might have to do a part two. I'd love to talk about this. Yeah, stuff too. one of this is awesome. one of uh, one of the best things I've heard on uh, one of Buck's Orthodox centric shows. I forget which guy said it, but um, I think it kind of resonates for a lot of people like us. Is that in our in our Wolbert phase, we were trying to express Christianity through libertarianism, and that really mm -hmm. really resonated with me. So that's all I got to mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. Well, gentlemen, uh, we're approaching two hours here. I'm going to give my wife a break and I'm going to go take the baby and things like that. Uh, oh. Why don't you guys throw some plugs again and uh, tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, Buck, you want to go? Sure. It's uh, Counterflow with Buck Johnson, YouTube, Rumble, all of that. Subscribe, if you will. And it's on, of course, all podcatchers. I hate that term, but that's what they're called now. But yeah, uh, Anywhere you can find podcasts or video casts, Counterflow with Buck Johnson. Follow me on Twitter at Buck Rebel, as the name says here on my little screen. Thank you guys for having me here. This has been great. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Adam. Um, Deborah gets red pill podcast, and you can find me at the Eastern Orthodox Church of the Annunciation, Milwaukee, Oregon, on uh, Sundays at ten. And on uh, Nate, if you remain ortho curious, I might know a guy that drives right by your house on the way there. So let me do know. it. Do it. Yeah. Interesting. Hey, Matt. Uh, King Pilled is the show. Real King Pilled is the Twitter handle. Um, I'm actually, the book that Adam held up earlier was uh, God's Revelation to a Human Heart by Father Seraphim Rose. I'm going to be doing a live reading of that on my show um, here, hopefully in the next couple of days. Um, awesome. Trying to get things back up and running again. So I've never read it, and I'm going to do a live reading um, and, and read it in real time for the first time and give my commentary as I go. So uh, if you go subscribe to the, the YouTube channel, that's where most of the stuff is. I'm working on getting stuff up on the podcatchers and stuff, but I've been on a hiatus for several months. Um, so just go subscribe on YouTube. That'd be the best way to get a hold of it. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Real King Pilled. And uh, I, I really appreciated this. This was awesome. I want to plug that reading of, of him doing that. That book really pulled me into orthodoxy. So I'm I'm really, it means a lot to me and I'm biased towards it, but I, that's a very special book. So that'll be a good yeah. episode. It's the first thing I read before I'm I, to listen even, to that one. Before I even went to, into, a, into a church. It's the first thing I read. That's awesome. Hey, Paul, do you have anything you want to promote or plug? Sure. sure. So I, I blog, but I post all of my blogs onto my Facebook page, which is uh, Paul Varky Pario, and uh, happy to connect with folks there. Awesome. Uh, Thomas. 
Yeah, I am the paranoid American. I uh, I just uh, write and publish comic books and help other people that work in occult spaces and conspiracy theories and just weird topics and help bring some of those ideas to life. So if you've got a cool idea and you want to figure out how to get it illustrated and published, whatever, just reach out and let me know. Uh, this is one of my big ones. This is the uh, MK Ultra pamphlet. It's no. the, chick track. Down. the chick track. It's a, it's a chick yep. track format. And actually, this is what I plan on doing for the rest of this year is just making a whole bunch of these little chick track style pamphlets that break down specific issues in depth and detail. So I've got this one on MK Ultra. Uh, I've got one that's going to be coming out later this year on the concept of a homunculus, alchemical, spiritual, just the whole range of it. And then me and Nate have been playing around with the idea of making a uh, pamphlet on Bigfoot, maybe, and Skunk Ape. Yep. Uh, and just yep. explaining all the different variations of that theory and where they came from. So if you uh, if you want to get a, a little preview of this one, you can go to mkultracomic.com or just paranoidamerican.com. And then, yeah, bam. Hey, Thomas, I got a question for you. Yeah, dude, shoot. Was... My podcast, the first one you're ever on? I think it was the first long format that I ever got to talk about MK Ultra. The very first one I was on was called The Idiocalypse with uh Oh with uh John with, Camp with and Jonathan, Cheney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and then Alex Stein got on it and he destroyed it and then <laughs> that was the end of it. But yeah, that was that was the very first one. I think you were the, the second one that I was ever on and the first time that I ever got to talk about MK Ultra in depth. So you, you hold a special place in my heart, Adam. You and Deborah. Right on. Me too. Awesome, guys. This was a lot of fun. Uh, I could just keep asking you questions all night, but I'm not going to do that. So uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it, guys. Thank appreciate you. It. Let's do a part two. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, let's definitely do a part two. All right.